All right. Chief Warner, appreciate you coming out to the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. So you are the police chief of King. I'm not sorry. God. (laughs) (laughs) I was was thinking chief and uh, sorry. No problem. Uh, Fire chief. I am, (laughs) among other things, actually. Oh, yeah? What else do you? So I'm fire chief for City of King, and I'm also the emergency management coordinator. Oh, nice. And I'm also the code enforcement director. Okay. So that whole emergency side is was my is my specialty for my undergrad as well. Yeah. So it kind of works out. Well, good. So before you jump, before we get into like what you do for Keen and all the ins and outs of that, tell me a little bit about how where you came from. So I was born and raised in deep south Texas, which is stone's throw from the Mexican border. If you're familiar with South Padre Dry Island or oh, Brownsville, yeah. I was not yeah, too very far from there. We just went to Corpus last weekend. Well, good. So <laughs> you got to go about another hour and a half south, and that's where I was from. Okay. So born and raised in Har- Harlingen, Texas. Everybody Harlingen? Harlingen. Harlingen. Everybody uh, think when I when I say that, they're, they say, uh, Arlington? Uh, no, no, <laughs> different place entirely. So it was a uh, coastal community. Uh, we were about a uh, 30-minute drive to South Padre Island. Okay. And I could be in Mexico in about 20 minutes if I wanted to. So did you do police work out there? I mean, I'm just, God, why am I going police all of a sudden? Well, Sorry. actually, it's strange that you should say that because uh, I've been a firefighter for about 29 years now. So I've been doing it for quite a long time. Uh-huh. But I'm also a police officer. Oh, I, you're the dual cert. I, I am. I've been a police officer for about 13 years now. Ooh, so you started out fire and then went police? Yes, and that okay. was actually part of my job description. Uh, at one point in my career, I did a lateral transfer over to a fire prevention division, and I served a few years as the assistant fire marshal, and then uh, later became the fire marshal for City of Harlingen. Uh, the City of Harlingen's got about a population of about seventy-five thousand. Okay, and uh, that's the, about the size of Cleburne, uh, ish. Well. Um, we also had uh, a lot of mobile population as well, so people coming in and out of the city. Um, so, what what made you want to get dual certain? Is just part of the job requirement to be fire it, marshal? It was okay. Yeah, so went and did that. Went through the police academy and got certified, and been a police officer, like I said, for about thirteen years now. Oh, nice. Okay, so after after that whole stint, where'd you go? Did you come directly to Keene? Like, what made you find Keene? My wife and I uh, had discussed things when we were living down there. Of course, that's where I was raised. She's actually from Waco. Oh, good old Waco. Yeah, we met in college <laughs> and uh, got married. Uh, she moved down to the valley, and we started our family there. We discussed that uh, when the time came when our children were grown and uh, could take care of themselves, and when we were able to retire from our jobs there, we would look for something a little closer to Waco so she could be closer to hmm. her, her mom. Okay. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, Keen had an opening, and I am so happy to be able to retire from the one job and then get picked up here in Keene. So how long have you been in Keene now as a fire chief? I've been almost three years. Not quite three okay. years, but almost. Oh, so it's still fairly recent. Still. So yeah. you haven't been here. I mean, three years is a good amount of time. Don't get me wrong. All right. But I mean, you leave, did you, were you able to pull retirement from Harlingen? I did. It I was nice. I retired from Harlingen. Uh, like I said, I've been a firefighter for 29 years. Uh, started with the city of San Benito, which is okay. a small town adjacent to Harlingen. Uh, it was a combination department, so both paid and volunteer firefighters. Okay. I worked there for one year and one day. And I say that a lot because uh, in the fire service, particularly civil service, you have a probationary year. Mm-hmm. And it's good old rookie year. year. Everybody hates yeah, the rookie so, year. <laughs> so I, was, I passed that and, uh, just by one day and I Left the city of San Benito and went to work with Harlingen, and I stayed there for 
uh, well until i came to Keene. what was the call take like out there in harlington we were running probably close to three thousand calls a year okay but to give you uh, some perspective on that the fire department in Harlingen has now has eight fire stations and oh, about, wow. a, about 110 firefighters. So oh. a pretty big organization. And like I said, uh, using that as perspective, about 3000 calls a year shared between those eight fire stations here in Keene with one fire station with 14 people. We're running almost 2000 calls a year. Oh, wow. So we stay pretty busy. Yeah. So how, so that's about how many a week? 2000 calls? How many calls a week? What, five calls a week? Well, right now we're running about, well, not, not per week. We're running about six a day. And, six a day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Day. So, uh, our wow, my math is completely off. I'm so bad at numbers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. When I was getting my pilot's license, I would always flip the, the coordinates in. That's uh -huh. to where I could put, if I'm trying to go 119, I'd, I'd go like 911 and put it on. Or right. 911, uh, whatever, 011 or something like that. I'm terrible with numbers, all that to say. Well, cool. It's very <laughs> cool that you're a pilot. Uh, yeah, I was kind of bored. It's one of those things I always want to do. One of the fire stations in Harlingen that I was over was the airport fire station. So I'm familiar oh, nice. with the aircraft rescue firefighting as well. Ooh, tell me about that. Uh, I'm not certified in that, mm -hmm. but I was responsible for the management of that. Okay. So uh, one of my fire stations uh, was strictly for the airport in Harlingen. And... Uh, their whole job was just to take care of whatever happened inside the airport grounds. Oh, wow. nice. So when you're back uh, down south, did you have a lot of because well, up here we, we you know, we don't get a whole lot of border stuff. But since you're being close to the border, was that a lot different compared to the, the keen take or whatever? It was. Um, you, there are a lot of different things that you have to deal with down there. And uh, there are some gangs and gang activity there. It's a lot safer than it used to be. Really? Uh, we had a lot of issues with some street gangs at one point. Uh, our police department uh, had a plan in place there in Harlingen, and they took about a year, but they finally got that under control. Nice. That particular part of the valley is uh, very much quieter than the rest as far as any gang activity mm -hmm. or any violence. Uh, there were also some times in my career where uh, I guess I can say that I got on the wrong side of uh, the Gulf cartel. Uh, they weren't real happy with me because okay. uh, there were some things that were going on there. Oh, this sounds interesting. In, I want to know this. I was kind of getting in their way of making some money. but uh, Can you tell me that story? Are you allowed to? Uh, there was a business that was uh, trying to come into the city of Harlingen, and, and uh, they were looking for investors. and had some wonderful technology that they were presenting, but it, things just didn't quite add up to me, and I started asking a lot of questions. Uh, over the course of about three years during my investigation there, which at one point I finally had to turn it over to a state and federal law enforcement officials. So you were, you were acting as a police there, as police there? Well, in my duties as fire marshal and a police uh -huh. officer there. Okay. Uh, some other agencies got involved and things were taken care of. but I didn't realize you could do full-on investigations like that as yeah, a as, fire marshal. As a uh, fire marshal, as a peace officer there, most of the duties, uh, even here in Keene, we have a part-time fire marshal, Ed Cheever. Uh, his duties can mostly deal with municipal violations and class C misdemeanors, things like that. But as law enforcement officers in that role, we can even investigate um, murders, arson, huh. you know, especially arson. So that's part of it. Oh, yeah. I heard that arson is, is uh, like trying to find the culprit and find the evidence for arson investigations is very, very difficult. And the evidence is very, very hard to find. And it's easily faked. Is that have you found that in your career as um, well? It is. It is difficult. It is more difficult to prove. Uh, I've even heard some uh, some of the instructors say that it's 
harder to prove arson than it is to prove murder. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, but over over time, you, you learn how to find that evidence, how to read the signs. And you, your first step is to find out where the fire started. And once you're able to find that, then you start looking for why the fire started. Mm. And if it's due to a crime or a person's involved, you start doing more of the police yeah. aspect at that point. And so uh, we're able to do that. And some different things there not only do you have to prove what happened in a court of law you have to also prove what did not happen so mm -hmm. for example if you take a just a general room uh, you'd have to look at any potential heat source uh, whether it was electric a candle a cigarette if any of those that are in there mm -hmm. you have to prove that this outlet did not start the fire because of this or this cigarette did not start the fire because of this but this candle did, and this is what happened. Are you kind of looking for like those splash burns right. on the walls and stuff? Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting field. Uh, it is still evolving at a court level. What does that mean, court level? So once you go to court and you're trying to prove that a person did something using mm -hmm. fire, they committed arson, um, you have to look at more, it's now more science-based, and there are a lot of legal steps that have to go through. Mm -hmm. You're going to go through what they call a basically a gatekeeper. Uh, you'll be interviewed by a judge and or attorneys and determine that whether you're professionally knowledgeable enough to testify in court as an expert. Hmm. Uh, Is there any like accreditation for that? There have been some professional certifications uh, through different organizations. Uh, such as the International Association of Arson Investigators. Okay. You can get some accreditations that way. Uh, a lot of this came about because of what's known as the Willingham case. And this is a, a gentleman that was uh, accused of not only setting a fire, but uh, murdering his family. And there was some, at the time, some things that were known to be true at the time was whenever you're investigating the fire, it mm -hmm. turns out to be scientifically false or it could be done differently to create the same effects. Hmm. This particular case, uh, they were referring to what's known as spalling, which uh, is when a concrete gets superheated, it'll start breaking. Um, with that particular case, they're saying at the time, it was believed that that would only happen if there was an accelerant such as gasoline. And so a person was tried and convicted for arson with that evidence. Now we know, and I've even been able to do it in the field setting where I can create spalling with no accelerant use. Oh, wow. So uh, experiments like that go a long ways to, to proving that mm -hmm. what was known to be science at that time is no longer true. Well, it's kind of like DNA evidence. Right. Even, there's a lot of interesting uh, new facts about DNA and how it can be faked and how like that just because DNA is on scene doesn't necessarily mean it's that person's DNA and Correct. some crazy medical stuff there too. So I'm actually very thankful for it. Uh, it continually makes us better. Uh, mm. Investigators have to make sure they're always on their A game, and that's really good for our community. That's cool that you're dual sorted too. That's that gives you a different perspective for being a fire chief here in Keene. Mm -hmm. So with all that experience, border life, um, you know, running into the gangs and stuff like that, how have you applied some of those things you've learned to the city of Keene? I know we don't have like yeah. gangs here necessarily. Or well, there's still some kind of gang violence and things like that, but it's very, very small compared mm. to what's uh, what I experienced uh, during my career. Um, there were times when I've actually had, I was out investigating a, uh, a fire scene and I was happened to be by myself and doing that. And, in uh, Keene? No, this was in Harlem, Virginia. Okay. And uh, I had some 
some uh, of the drug cartel gang members approached me, and I was able to get out of that without any troubles. But hmm. uh, did you just like sweet talk your way out? <laughs> I did actually. I did. But using some things like that that I've been through, hmm. and then coming up here as as fire chief. Uh, it gives me a lot of perspective. So oh, I love that you said the word perspective is everything. It is. So uh, as an example, when I first got here, uh, one of the issues that I first dealt with was a broken air conditioner in the fire station. And there were people that were like truly upset that it was not working. I'm not talking about the firefighters. I'm talking elsewhere. Hmm. And I kept thinking, this is this is nothing, you know, mm. there's nothing to get upset about. I, you know, I've had to deal with people following me home mm -hmm. as compared to you know, just getting an air conditioner. Mm -hmm. fixed. So it's all in perspective. And, and uh, it's yeah. interesting you say that because um, I went to Nigeria for a couple of weeks, worked at a hospital. And that was one of those things that gave me a massive perspective on here today, world life. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of like whenever people in nigeria graduate high school and want to go to college they have to put one year into back into the to the government mm -hmm. so whether you work for the army for a little while or you whatever the case may be, there's there's millions of options um but i like that there's a requirement there not, not i'm not saying that people graduate high school and they have to go work for the military but the traveling aspect i think that every american should have to go um to a third world country for just a time for like a week Give it perspective. Like, watch it whenever you get out of those out of that plane, and there's military with AK 47s pointing a gun at you, or you get searched at the airport, and mm -hmm. you look at the infrastructure, how there's like literally nothing. And that's one of those things that gives you perspective. Whenever you're, you know, six hours, I was six hours away from ISIS at that time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're walking by and you see the villages that were burnt. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like we're over here crying about air, air conditioners. And literally, just I came back from a place that is war torn. Right. That's perspective. That's a lot of perspective. I like that you're bringing that to the city of Keene. Appreciate so, that. So let's uh, let's move forward with Keene. Your your responsibilities. Let's walk through it. So first, I kind of want to know what you do with the EM side, with the emergency man emergency management side. We're into tornado season. We're getting a lot. It's a pretty active season compared to the past seven years, I believe. Um, so tell me about your roles in that. So emergency management, it's actually a separate uh, department in most cities. And mm -hmm. so um, yeah. think of it as me wearing a different hat. It's, it is related to uh, fire, police, EMS, but it's on a bigger scale. So you're mentioning tornado season. Some, some things that I would do as emergency management coordinators, I tend to watch the weather a lot. Uh, I'm responsible for making sure that that outdoor warning siren works. And I work with our PIO. How um, many uh, sirens are there? We have one currently. Okay, is that right by the police station? It's uh, it's on South College, uh, near Fourth Street. Oh, so okay. There's a water tower there. And yeah, yeah. That's where that particular siren is. Uh, we actually had that replaced not too very long ago. Very good. Uh, the one that was there when I got hired was not working. That's one of the things that oh. uh, we had worked with with the uh, previous city manager and then with council. And we got funding for that from uh, from the Grace Council, and, and got that not only that siren put in, but upgraded our software as well. So we put in a new server and got some software. And uh, there is a select group of uh, city leaders that can access that software. And in the event that things don't work just like they should, uh, as an example, uh, that siren set to go off automatically in certain uh, circumstances, but we can also activate it manually. Like uh, we, what circumstances? 
Um, typically, it'll be a warning from the National Weather Service. It'll just they'll, go they'll, off. So um, that software monitors that, but it's very specific geographically. Mm. So, for example, if that were if National Weather Service were to issue something in Cleburne, that might not set our mm. siren off. It's very uh, geographically specific. Mm. So we can watch that. Uh, a lot of people I saw on Facebook were asking questions about, well, there were tornadoes over in Grandview that not too very long ago. Mm -hmm. Why weren't the sirens going off here? Because there was a countywide uh, notification for tornado uh, tor tornado warning. Uh, again, it's very, very geographic specific. So I, I kind of make sure that that stays up and running. But also in the event that we do have a large scale crisis, so, for example, you know, we talk about the the winter storm not too very long ago. Mm. That was bad enough. Um, however, what happened afterward is really when the crisis started. So, so like I, the water, or it was okay. the water. All the all the water breaks, and yeah. uh, we had a, a pretty pretty serious crisis at that point. So, as a city, we would open what we call the emergency operations center. And at that point, I'm in charge of that particular. Do the IC? Um, well, it's bigger than the IC. So okay. IC is uh, incident commanders like out in the field on a specific location. The emergency operations center is going to be away from all of that and is able to handle multiple emergencies happening. So, for example, uh, let's say you did have a tornado come through a city. You might have some building collapses. You might have some gas lines break. You might have several structure fires. Each and every one's a different emergency, and you need uh, a group of people that can help coordinate each and every one of those and send the appropriate resources where they're needed. So it just kind of adds a level to to handling handling an emergency. And there's something called the NIMS, you know, a National Incident Management System. Um, do you use NIMS and I, the ICS structure we for do. the city of Keene? We do. Uh, National Incident Management structure, that's through FEMA, mm -hmm. and it is a mandate. Everybody, every emergency responder in, in the nation should be using that. And there's like, what, 15 classes or something like that? There's a whole oh, bunch of classes. There's a lot, and uh, some of them are not easy. Yeah. You know, there's some you can do online. You can knock them out uh, pretty, pretty quickly. quickly. But there's others where you have to be there in person and you go through some simulations of uh, of emergencies and i've been through a lot of those even on a state scale yeah well did you go that, that one that i think the state of texas puts on every one or two years they do i, I participated in one several years called uh, they refer to it as hurricane texas mm. and in that one uh, my my specific role this was back when i was in harlingen my specific role there was to coordinate all the emergency response from the fire department my fire chief at the time was in the emergency operations center and uh, so i was my job was to coordinate responses to everything that that fire department would take care of but this was a a regional exercise so it's not just one city there are many many agencies yeah. involved and we actually uh, were transporting people from one place out to the airport putting them on c-130s flying them to different cities hmm. and uh, our group had to track where not only where everybody's going but any of their medications or pets mm. and things like that well this is this is very important because this is what the breakdown was for hurricane katrina i had to do multiple reports on this and literally the breakdown of the ics structure the breakdown of the nims idea um was the failure of hurricane katrina specifically within louisiana now hurricane katrina was a three uh, state radius um but other states like mississippi they did it okay like the reports that came out from hurricane katrina from, from mississippi side was hey you followed the structure um, but the issue with Louisiana was that there was literally zero communication. That's with any type of incident. Communication is probably the most important side. I agree. Because chaos 
always rain, especially with MCI, like mass mm -hmm. casualty incidents. Mm -hmm. um, but with Katrina, what happened was the, the Louisiana, New Orleans had all these people trying to create their own ICS structures within an ICS structure. And you can't have a, like a structure like, uh, like for instance, National Guard came in and created their own ICS structure outside of the state structure that was coordinate, supposed to be coordinating everything at the right. Superdome. Right. And at the Superdome, the National Guard's like, hey, who's in charge? Nobody knew. So again, lack of communication. So how does the city of Keene prevent something like that happen? Like say a, a tornado comes in. Break down that that structure for me. Well, I can actually go a step further than that Ooh, instead, yes. of, instead of doing the what ifs. So okay. like I said, I've been here just shy of three years. And in that time, we've already opened our EOC twice. So okay. we didn't have to do a mock or a simulation. We actually were doing the real thing. Mm. So, do you guys drill at all? Uh, we haven't yet. Again, because we're having, we're, it, unfortunately, it's been working out about once a year. We've oh, had to open that EOC, at least since I've been here. Um, we are, we do have some plans in place where we're going to be doing some of that. Mm -hmm. We do have a new city manager, Bernie Parker. Yeah. And he's got background in emergency management. Nice. So he and I have already been talking and we're looking at, cool. at doing some things there. Um, that's a big deal it is that's and, a big deal. and, and really it it, it, uh, it it improves our efficiency mm -hmm. so one of the first ones that I dealt with and I want to say it was 2019 we had the cyberware attack so for those that don't know there were some bad actors at one place and they seized all of our uh, electronic data really right and recently so, uh, this was just a couple of years ago I didn't hear about that. So that actually happened statewide. Uh, there were a lot of different agencies involved. We were we were uh, fairly early on. We we caught on to what was going on as far as the city. And that was actually our public works director was one of the first. So he had come to work very early in the morning, and he started noticing some really strange things on the computer. Uh, a lot of the department heads, myself included, were in a class over in the Dallas area or going to a class that day. And as we became aware that there was really something wrong going on, we all decided to come back. Uh, by the time I got back, they were already in a executive uh, setting where all the apartment heads were beginning to come together. Once we got that, once we were able to get back and got all the information, uh, I opened up our EOC and started organizing on our response to this. Uh, Don, our public works director, was actually many steps ahead of us. He'd nice. already he started working to mitigate this, along with our police department mm -hmm. as well. Uh, we started getting word out to you know all city employees to start uh, doing certain things that would mitigate our exposure to any event like this. So within the EOC, having too many people there actually does the opposite effect can, with correct. efficiency. That's what happened with Louisiana. Correct. So who goes into the EOC? Who are the, the main people? So typically, the, um, by state law, or any mayor, our mayor mm -hmm. in this case, would be the emergency management, emergency management director. He has certain powers and authority granted by state law. Mm -hmm. He appoints a emergency management coordinator. In this case, that's me. And then once we do that, we're going to have different divisions. So I'll set up a logistics division, a planning division, mm -hmm. finance, and so on, operations. Mm -hmm. Operations could be, maybe it's one of my senior captains or one of my captains there at the fire station. Uh, and maybe it, the operations uh, chief would be, maybe it's a police officer. So it just depends on the situation. Yeah. And that's the command staff. Correct. And, and so they would be letting me know what they were doing, what they're responsible for. Uh, typically, our finance director would be in charge of finance, mm -hmm. you know, any, any money that we're going to have to spend. 
they're able to track. A lot of times we can get reimbursement from federal government for that. So it's very important we track all of that. But each every, each and everybody there would have a specific duty. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would, in this case, with the uh, cyberware attack, we were having meetings twice a day. And we would meet to discuss what happened since we last met, what we're going to do moving forward. Everybody get their tasks and marching mm-hmm. orders and go out and they do that. And we meet back and all right, where are we at? How are we going to move forward? We just kept doing that until we were done with it. Uh, I'm very happy to say, and matter of fact, uh, just earlier this week, I made mention of this as well. I'm very, very happy to say, very proud of our uh, our department heads, our executive staff, because during that cyberware event, we were one of the, if not the first city to get help from the state level. Hmm. And later on, after everything was said and done, I was, uh, of course, we do an after action review. Hmm. And I was talking with some of those people. So we had uh, we had help from Texas Department of Emergency Management. Now, why was Keene one of the first? So that's what that's really why I'm, I'm so happy to report this. We were one of the first to get help because, one, we had some very sensitive equipment that was affected, at least they thought at the time. But even more so, Keene was organized and ready to receive help uh, before anybody else. Hmm. So, and that's because y'all were y'all were activating the ICS structure very quickly. You got correct. things done quick. Okay, yeah. very cool. So, uh, long Props. story short, yeah, we we had our game together. And we were ready to go. Okay. And uh, just, so now uh, I kind of want to talk about uh, the last time you had reactivate the EOC. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn from that experience? You know, there was a lot of stuff that occurred. A lot of people blamed the city for some tough things that occurred. Um, what did you learn from that experience? And again, this is a touchy subject for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but um, kind of walk me through that. Uh, if you're, are you referring to the the, 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 water, the water crisis, mm-hmm. the winter storm? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what we learned from there is, is we needed to get our communications out to the public maybe a little bit faster. And we did resolve a lot of that. We started issuing press releases. Yeah. Uh, the city brought in some, uh, some help to be able to put those together and, and do that. Uh, our PIO did very, very well in, yeah. in, in getting all that done in a specific that. way. Once we started getting that information out to the public, that takes away a lot of the well, what if, mm-hmm. you know, the, a lot of the uh, assumptions and suppositions that people make. And they understand what we're doing and what we will do. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the that was the biggest issue that we had. And, and sometimes it just takes a little while to get you know, get things spun up so we can meet those needs you know, uh, according to what people expect from us. Yeah. Um, like you said, communication is so important. And I'm glad that uh, the city of Keene has taken on that in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways y'all did that was the text messages that you can sign up for. Right. You can do that. So can you still sign up for those same things for like tor- like um, when a tornado comes? Will you get an alert on your phone? You can. So, okay. you know, our, people ask questions about that at our uh, warning system. That is what we know. We refer to that as a secondary means of notification. So the outdoor, the sirens, right? The okay. out, the sirens outdoor. Uh, you're only going to hear that if you're outside mm-hmm. and it's telling you you need to go inside. So the, oh, and, and by the way, do you guys do siren fatigue? Like, I'm mean, not do siren fatigue. Do you guys um, with that siren activate it a lot, or do you only activate it in very specific situations manually? Because like with more Oklahoma, one of the issues why mortality was so high with that huge EF five tornado that occurred probably two, seven, eight years back um, was they more was always activating their, their tornado sirens, even for, you know, a, a severe thunderstorm. 
And that's a big issue that, was, that a lot of cities have had to deal with. So with siren fatigue, how does that work with you guys? We don't have it go off for every little thing. Okay. We, we're very specific on when we're going to do that. Good. Most of that is going to be for tornado warnings, uh, very heavy thunderstorm warnings, things like that. Okay. Uh, and, and we're very cognizant of that. We don't want to have any of that siren mm -hmm. fatigue. It's like the boy who cries wolf a lot right. of times. Right. So uh, the other thing that we do is we uh, we test it once a month, and it's always the first Thursday of the month at 9 a.m. Okay. It was tested this, that was my next question. This, this morning, Yeah. and I could hear it from the fire station, so I know that it worked. And then also, I mean, sometimes we'll have people call and ask if you know, they thought they heard it. Well, I can actually go into that software, and I can go through and see if it activated or not. Okay. Uh, as far as uh, uh, Civic Plus and things like that, mm -hmm. you can still go on the city's website, and you can sign up for that and get text messages. Uh, from the city as well is there a way to um because i know i know people have to sign up for is it an easy process it is it's very easy okay just simply go in there and you click on that link follow those instructions and then you'll start getting some notices okay again that's a that's a primary means of notice mm -hmm. it's going to go straight to your phone you know we also are are aware of the the, the digital divide you know, not everybody has a smartphone not everybody is computer savvy and we're aware of that. Uh, we do what we can to reach a lot of those individuals. So there might be notifications through television. Uh, if we know specifically, you might even get a visit from somebody just saying, hey, you know, be careful. What if the grid is out and there's no power? Uh, the siren itself is on you know, emergency generator. So that'd be the secondary one. Yeah, okay. the secondary. And then if communications go down, I, we're going to have big problems everywhere. Well, did you see there's a new technology that was coming out? I forgot. What I, oh, gosh, I know I got to look this up. But um, it allows you to communicate in disasters. It's specifically made for phones to talk to you. It's an app. Okay. It's something to look into, at least. Um, it's an app that communicates with people um, without ever having to have a local network. And so the network is just almost direct, just with phones. So, you know, you have no data. If there's no cell phone towers working and say they got destroyed, or you know, the entire grid is out like we experienced with the storm, um, this allows you to talk to people within a certain radius. So there are some products that are available by some of the cell phone companies, and we get we talk to them every now and then. But there are things like if in the event of emergency, cell phones tend to fail because everybody is calling to make sure that their family's safe, or you know, there's a lot of phone calls, and so mm -hmm. the, the cell phone grid may be over overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So there's some uh, services that are offered which would put emergency responders kind of on a priority so instead of waiting for an opening on that particular bandwidth it would just say well this phone belongs to a first responder and it's going to have priority of course there's a cost associated yeah. with that and so yeah. we're not doing that at this particular time we don't see that particular need you know, risk versus reward mm -hmm. i love cost benefit analysis man yeah. it's so great um one thing that i i do want to know how do we get households within the city within every city honestly to take more of a primary role in their own emergency management um, preparation. Because like what we found out with uh, the Fukushima disaster with mm -hmm. the hurricane or monsoon or whatever it was, right. with the nuclear spills, is that the people who knew their neighbors, the people who actually had a little bit more preparation actually were able to knit together a little more, had less had lower mortality. So for instance, urban areas who are where uh, they were very, you know, the city bound people who are very, cognizant of work, don't really know their neighbors, they had a high mortality because, you know, if, if granny down the street who's 70 years old uh, doesn't know their neighbor and she's only relying on the city 
as the primary responsibility to for rescue, she's going to die. Versus right. somebody who's next to you who says, "Hey, our, hey, Joe or Jill, how you doing? Let's let's get out." <laughs> I've I've read that same report oh, myself, cool. so I'm very well aware of that. Sweet. Uh, that's one of the things I really love about Keen. Uh, you know, I had some choices of where I could go work after I retired, but after coming to Keen and meeting a lot of the people, I just fell in love with it. Mm. And what I've experienced during those several crises that we've had is the city really comes together. Neighbors check on neighbors, uh, and there's a it's, it's very much family oriented and people will go out and you know hey are you okay can we do anything for you mm. and i really love that and if there are any uh, emergencies they, they would call us and then we can go out and do some help as well but, but when the day comes when you're re- out resourced you know how do we foster the same ideal within community and neighbors to make sure that whenever one day you know something terrible even worse than the last disaster occurred and the city's just overwhelmed and out-resourced, fostering that idea of the neighborhood mentality like Fukushima mm-hmm. um, is really the next thing you got to rely on. So how do you foster that mentality? I think that's, uh, I think it's culturally based and it's just part of our society and in Keene, it's just the way people were raised. Mm. Now, I wish we could do that nationwide and yeah. I think we'd be a lot better off. Um, but as far as being out-resourced uh, with the systems that we have in place that's going to be very difficult to get there well well, we can be out resourced but we go to that next level so i can ask for resources from Mm -hmm. the county and then from the the state state, and then from the region and then on up and we can time is everything right it is like that golden hour we talk about in ems right exactly so how do we how do how does that time frame get smaller like reaching out to a state official or county official um how long does it take when during a disaster for them to respond Depends on the situation and what all is going on, but uh, it can happen very, very quickly. And mm. part of that, my job as emergency manager coordinator is to develop those relationships and those networks. So, for example, that first one, that cyberware attack, uh, we had to drive back from the Dallas area. And it was like a 40-minute drive or so. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I was on the phone with the Texas Department of Emergency Management okay. through my contacts there. And we were already getting resources headed towards Keene to assist with that. Uh, the same during the, the, the water crisis shortly after that snowstorm is I was able to contact some people and start getting uh, pallets of bottled water. Yeah, I saw those pictures. It's shifted, really cool. Shifted over to Keene. Strong work on that, by the way. Thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate that because what a lot of people don't know is this was, you know, this was happening everywhere mm-hmm. and uh, everybody needed bottled water. And so just being able to get what we were able yeah. to get was amazing. and. A lot of that was just through a lot of teamwork and coordination, not just, I mean, it's not me, it's, it's the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really appreciate how our staff all came together and was able to mitigate this. So, uh, I honestly could probably talk about EMS and the whole EM things th- side of things for another 30 minutes, but I'm curious about the other hats you wear. Okay. So, uh, not very long ago, uh, I was also put in charge of the code enforcement uh, department. And so with that, it's, uh, we have a, now myself, although I'm not certified as a code enforcement officer, I do have quite a bit of experience because I did work for seven years in fire prevention, and a lot of that was as the fire marshal. So do you go in like with a ruler and measure grass? Oh, no, no. We, we don't. But uh, <laughs> my background there was a lot with uh, not only you know how to read code, but how to find information, mm-hmm. how to interpret that, how to research that. You know. You know, is this particular ordinance, does it supersede this other one? And, and how does that work? 
sometimes it can get very complicated as new laws are continually added. Yeah. There are still old laws on the book and, you know, you got to be able to interpret some of that. Mm-hmm. So, so are you involved with all the new land developments and, and uh, neighbors that are popping up? To a certain extent, but yep. that's, so that's when I put on my, my fire chief hat and we look at that. You know, are the roads wide enough mm-hmm. and are the turn radiuses okay? Uh, do they have the proper water supply for the fire hydrants? And we look at a lot of things like that. Very cool. But as far as code enforcement, um, that's my background. And, and just at the time, uh, we needed somebody to help out our, our code enforcement officer, or official at the time. She's now certified. And she's doing that part time. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of it. Budgets are, are we, you know, we're very cognizant of how, mm-hmm. we're, how we're taking care of our citizens' uh, tax money. So what we've done recently is uh, I used to have a full time fire department administrative assistant. Now I have a part time one who I was also working part time as our code enforcement uh, person. Okay. So this this young lady is doing actually. Two different jobs. Okay. Seems like that happens a lot with Sydney King. A lot of people wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, we all wear a lot of hats. Like, you know, in theory, I'm in charge of three different departments mm-hmm. if I was at a bigger city. You know. The plus of that side is that there's not somebody with just having blinders on within the department. Right. Because like when you're with big cities, you have one person who's that's their specialty. But the issue is that when it's that when that one thing is their specialty, they don't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another thing I love about working for the Keen as an organization is we all work together. It that's what I've heard. Yeah, it doesn't matter who's doing what. We all come together when the help's needed, uh, whether it's filing paperwork or uh, just handling maybe something that's come up, and and we'll all come together and discuss how to how to handle that. And nobody ever says that's not my job. Yeah, we always come together, and, and which is rare. Yeah, <laughs> and we get it. We've got a really, really, really good team. And mm. I'm very happy to be here in Keene. Yeah, I had a good conversation with the police chief on, mm. not Warner. Okay. Mm. i got to stop doing that. <laughs> um, and he seemed like a really cool guy. You know, I've, I've been able to talk to Nathan. I've been able to talk to Gary, of course, yes. uh, Mayor, Mayor Heinrich. And again, um, all the people I don't have weird vibes about. <laughs> no, everybody uh, works really well together. And we're very, very happy to be here. So is, so is that the only hat you you only wear three hats? Those three, yeah, okay. just, just, those, just three. those three. Just those three. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, no big deal, right? <laughs> I'm not a big deal at all. <laughs> so my, those are some of the things that we also work on, and with code enforcement, it's you know we start seeing things happening different times, and so like right now it's a lot of rain, it's spring, mm-hmm. and so of course we're going to have a lot of grass growth, and so we're taking care of a lot of that. But you know we're not going to be going out there saying you have to mow your grass right now, even though it's raining. <laughs> You know, we're going to. So you you do go with the ruler. (laughs) You know, we we do uh, uh, give a lot of people a lot of grace and we understand things come up, but let's let's work on this and hopefully we can get this resolved in the next week or two. Just depends. Do you you live in Keene? I don't, but I'm not too very far from here. I live uh, near Burleson. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah. When uh, something else, another story I like to tell, when I did get this job, uh, I had two weekends to find a place to live. Oh, gosh. I was uh, literally you know, taking my family, uprooting them, and moving what, 600 miles away from where we were. Mm-hmm. So what Jeez. my wife and I would do is uh, we left down in the valley. We left there Friday evenings after work, so 5, 6 o'clock. Drove all the way up here. I stayed with my mother-in-law in Waco. And then the next morning, we were up about 5 in the morning, drove to the Cleburne, Keene, Burleson area, and mm-hmm. we were looking for a place. Met with a realtor that we had contacted, and had a list of about 30 places we wanted to go look at. Uh, the market at the time was 
just outrageous because about the time you say, yeah, I kind of like that. No, it's sold already. Oh, it's kind of like today then. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a realtor as well. And one of the things, awesome. one of the things that I've, I've realized that the market is, I think the highest has been in 30 years or 25, 30 years. Yeah. So it's about, that's about right. Yeah, <laughs> that, that first weekend we narrowed our list down to about five different places, went back home uh, that Sunday. It was eight hour. I'm sorry, from here, about a 10 hour drive going back. Uh, during that week, we did all of our homework on it and came back up the next weekend and started making offers on places. And we didn't get the one we wanted, which would have been uh, very close to Keene or only a couple of miles from Keene. It would have been in Cleveland City limits, but didn't get that one. Instead, we got our second pick. Okay. So, well, very cool. Yeah. So I see you have uh, a lot of papers in front of you. I do. Tell me about that. So I just brought some notes and uh, depending on what we we're going to talk about. So well, what do you want to talk about? One of the things I'm really excited to announce to our community, again, thanks to the grace of council, is we've just received our brand new 2021 ambulance. I saw that. It yeah. looks pretty cool. It is. It's, it's probably it's, the nicest ambulance I've seen. Um, I'm very, very happy with our staff, our fire department staff that did a lot of that design. Um, my particular leadership methods, particularly in this one, is I told them these are the things I want, and I listed all that out. And I said, other than that, you guys get involved. And so is I, it a Ford or a Chevy? It's a Ford. Okay. But, uh, we, we did look at some other um, chassis availabilities, mm -hmm. but we ended up going with a Ford F-450. Oh, there you go. And it's got a big box, too. It does. It's bigger than the older ambulance that mm -hmm. we had. Uh, a lot of new technology in it. Uh, of course, we were doing this design and buying it during the time of COVID. Mm. So there's a lot of things in there. And it was uh, one of the, uh, or a few of the items on my list. So some of the exciting things are inside the actual box part of it where the patient will be is uh, even some of the painting in there on some of the grab bars is antimicrobial. Oh. So it will help with decontaminating the ambulance after every call. You know, we don't want to pick up a sick patient and then pass on whatever they have mm -hmm. to the next patient. So we clean in between. Give those purple wipes. We do. Yeah. yeah we uh, use that's, that. that's what I clean all yeah. the time in the back. So we're, we're doing that. And then, uh, well, like I said, even, even the paint on those handles is uh, designed to uh, deter any uh, bacterial or viral infection. That's cool. So how does the paint do that? I, I have no idea. Hmm. I, I wish I knew, but it's something, Google that yeah, something in there. Uh, another exciting feature of the ambulance is it has a UV light in it as well. And so when we get back to the station and after having cleaned everything down, uh, we shut all the doors. You can turn that light on. We let it run for 30 minutes and it will also kill a mm -hmm. large percentage of any bacteria or virus that's inside that area. That's crazy. Some, uh, yeah, it's, we're very, very, very happy with it. Uh, we also installed what's known as the powered load system. Uh, are you oh, yeah. are you familiar yeah, with that? We, I never had it, and okay. I, I always, especially with the berry trucks, with the right. berry patients. <laughs> right. So we've got that in there, and, and we're very excited about that. We actually showed that to council about a week ago. Well, actually, explain actually, what that is. Actually, a week ago today. So the, the powered load system is a system designed for loading and unloading the stretchers with or without the patient being on it. In the past, the old style of stretchers. Uh, a lot of mechanical, you know, that the legs would collapse and mm -hmm. you lock into place when you pick it up. That would require two to three individuals to pick that up mm -hmm. with a patient on it. You'd have to bend down at the waist and muscle it up and then get it into the back yep. of that, that ambulance. Some newer ambulances have uh, battery operated hydraulics, but still you have to do a lot of lifting on that. Mm -hmm. So with those, and that's what we're currently operating on until the new ambulance gets in service. With these type of cots, uh, you would roll it into the back of the ambulance. It would lock in, but then you would have to physically pick up on it 
to raise the legs and those legs would come up hydraulically. You'd have to support the weight of the cot and the patient until those legs came up and then you could put them in the back. And you're, this is going into detail, but this is actually very important because dropping people is a common thing for a lot of places. Yeah, we don't want to do mm -hmm. that. So with the power load system, once it gets locked in, the the base of that system and through hydraulics there, it's kind of like a cantilever system. It supports the entire weight of the cot and the patient. All the attendant has to do at that point is push a button. You don't have to do any physical lifting. Hmm. You just push a button and the machine does it all and hmm. loads the patient. How so, big is the cot? Is uh, it normal size? Yeah, it's normal okay. sized. It can it can take up to uh, it's rated for eight hundred and seventy pounds. There you go. So, Jeez. Yeah, and uh, we do have some people that are pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. we, we've had to use uh, up to six people to lift a cot at one point. <sighs> So, man, those, my, those are rare, but uh, yeah. Do you guys yeah. have a manual stretcher? I'm sorry. Do you have a manual stretcher? We do. We still, we still yeah. have the, one of the old ones. My well. very first CPR was on a manual stretcher, and I almost dropped the patient. Yeah. It was terrible. <laughs> so this new power load system is going to really reduce any risk of dropping a patient, and it is also going to drastically reduce any potential for injuries to our our paramedics. Yep. So yeah, uh, and that oh. happens. It happens a lot more regularly. Often. Yeah. Yeah. So this is going to be good for our community. Uh, and along with that, along another feature of the ambulance is uh, it has what's called liquid spring suspension. So that's using a compressed liquid to adjust the suspension of the actual ambulance. Okay. So huh. it's got three different settings, normal setting and for everyday normal use, but we can also raise it and it's about a six inch lift. Wow. So people ask, well, why do you need that? Well, there are some rough terrain that we got to get that yep. ambulance into and we would need that extra, um, clearance That's to be crazy. able to get into that technology man yeah. also we can set it for uh stiffer suspension so on a really windy day mm -hmm. instead you know this this ambulance basically acts like a sail and instead of getting pushed around early we can switch it to that and it increases our ability to handle turns and things so let, let's get practical so like imagine somebody is down a ravine they fell there's say let's pretend like it's a car wreck uh -huh. like why this is important imagine they're there um you assess the patient while they're say it's even an extrication prolonged extrication so you know you're working against the clock um you had to get the stretcher there they let's pretend like they have a c2 fracture okay and um i've taken stretchers like manual stretchers which are just rigid legs across rocks and it, it's terrible like the slightest amount of movement for somebody with a C-spine fracture or any type of fracture in the spine is critical. Like you, is. Can, you can actually have like internal decapitations based on, on the way the bone shifts. And I've actually seen that happen. I, yeah, I, same I, here. I worked a patient where that, where that happened. Did you take him to JPS? No, this was actually okay. down, down the valley. <laughs> and it was after a police car chase that resulted in a, in a wreck. When I got on scene, I found the patient in the back of the uh, police vehicle in handcuffs and when, when everything was said and done at the hospital, they, they realized that there was an internal decapitation. The person was still alive, but. That's insane. Yeah. That's, it goes back to say, you know, when it's your time, you need your time. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd like to say having something that actually suspend or uh, rolls with the punches of the terrain is, can be life or death. Correct. So you went into some detail. So I just wanted people to know why having something like that is, but I've never heard of a stretcher do that, which is mm -hmm. awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to put that into practical solutions. So, yeah, we, a lot of new features on it, a lot of new technology. We're very, very happy with it, we're very proud of it. And we will be inviting our public and our council to a ceremony once we get all the paperwork done with the state. It usually takes about a month. Mm. 
You got to get insurance on it. And yeah. You got to get it registered with uh, Texas Department of State Health Services. Have you all sold the old one yet? It was part of the trade in. So, oh, okay. Uh, we got a pretty good value for that as part of that trade in. Uh, we looked at uh, selling it to some other agencies. They didn't really want that. We considered uh, donating it to other agencies as a tax write off, but hmm. ultimately it, it worked out better for us financially as part of the trade in value. What's the uh, main call, medical call y'all run? Um, this depends. Uh, I was doing, I was actually looking through some reports this morning, and surprisingly enough, our busiest days. Well, let me ask you. Uh, with some, with your background, what do you think our busiest days in the in the fire department are? Mondays. You think so? Yeah, that's all right. my entire life. It's You're been right. Like that. Uh, in Keene, our busiest days are Mondays and Tuesdays. Yeah. Tuesdays are actually busier than Monday. So really, yeah, it's a little surprising. Hmm. Uh, busiest time of the day? What do you think it is? For me, it was five. You're very very close. It's six o'clock for us. Oh, okay, so yeah. four worth five just because of all the DFW traffic. Yeah, but so. Um, Where you're going with that? Yeah. Where was I going with that? <laughs> That's good information, though. Yeah. So uh, knowing that helps me uh, adjust, and we know when to. Oh, main chief complaint, main call is what we're going. Oh, main call. It it just depends on time of day uh, and the day of the week. It could be any. Uh, mostly, we run a lot of sick calls. Mm -hmm. uh, people that wouldn't have a you know difficulty breathing or whatnot. Uh, we run a, a lot of diabetic complications. Uh, and you have you, it's almost rural. It's not rural EMS, but it's almost there. Where you have the close hospitals, Hughley, you have Cleburne, uh, Walls or Harris now. Right. Um, they have JPS for trauma. Mm -hmm. So with y'all's protocols, when y'all running, do you are you able to hang blood? Are you able to draw blood or anything like that? We are. So we run. What's oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, we we run what's uh, well not blood. We don't carry the blood there. But, okay. Uh, with IVs, we can do a lot of IV fluids. Yeah. Uh, we run our ambulances, MICU, Mobile Intensive Care Unit. So it's basically emergency department on wheels. Mm -hmm. Our paramedics are top-notch, and they stay in contact with the hospitals, and so they can get orders from the doctors, and, and uh, they are able to treat while while in route. Mm -hmm. uh, our protocols uh, they come from our our medical director. Who's your medical director? Uh, Michelle, Doctor Beeson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So uh, we follow those, and as far as which hospital we're going to, there are cases when we can you know see what the patient wants to do or what the family wants to do. But as needed, especially in a true dire emergency, it is the closest, most appropriate mm. hospital. So those, there's two factors there. Um, a hospital may be closer, but if they don't have the ability to treat what's going on with this patient, we'll like a burn, the, right? We'll go to the next hospital. Yeah. Uh, so, do you guys do RSI? Um, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, like a rapid sequence intubation. Like where you put them under and then we can. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we can. Actually, we're getting some new uh, equipment that was funded through the CARES Act uh, through the county. And they were able to, uh, because we're members of the emergency services district, we we're able to get some of that equipment. And now we have video laryngoscopes. Oh, nice. So again, there you that's, go. Again, that's, uh, <laughs> that's to help out because of COVID. You don't, you know, the paramedics to be able to innovate somebody would actually have to get, yep. you know, just inches from their face to be able to do it correctly. Well, I cleaned, I always had to deal with and maintenance and clean those things at the hospital. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's good. That's a huge deal. So the, with the video laryngoscopes now, we can step back and you're looking at a monitor. Mm -hmm. and you don't have to expose yourself to whatever disease that that person may have, whether it was COVID or whatever the case may be. Well, there was a huge debate between King Airs and uh, ET tubes. Yes. And so this will, this will make sure that ET tubes are always going to be more efficient because you can actually see down there. Yeah, correct. That's cool. Very cool. So, um, 
we're at 51 minutes so we kind of need to wrap up so as you as we're wrapping up what else do you want to kind of tell the city as a final message even if you have stats that you want to talk about or anything like that i think we touched about uh, quite a few of them uh, one of my one of my uh, personal i call it a performance indicator is uh, we try to keep our our responses in the city limits keen limited between three and five minutes um, since i've been here i've been following that statistic and we're pretty spot on do you have so, priority calls for different times it's like priority one calls or you know two minutes priority th three calls or five minutes no i mean any any response Anything. anywhere cool. in, in the city limits of king you're going to get help within no no more than five minutes very cool that, that's my that's my benchmark uh, and then in the county we service we service 33 square miles so okay. uh, there are times when our our response might be 12 15 even 20 minutes do you mutual aid with AMR? We mutual aid with pretty much everybody. You know, whether it be fire or EMS, we're you know, helping whoever needs it Okay. Um, within our particular area. You know, dispatch goes through that. Um, That's cool. So, you know, we, we are running EMS and with that new ambulance, we were also still serve as a fire department. Uh, not very long ago, we had a structure fire. Uh, it was over the yeah. Memorial Day weekend. So I heard about that. Our staff was out there. They did a wonderful job in stopping that fire. Okay. What kind of fire was it? It was a uh, uh, room and contents. It started oh. on the back porch and made it was, made its way into the house and up into the attic a little bit. But, Fully involved? Uh, well, for that area. Correct? Yeah. So um, in theory, about 25% of the structure was involved okay. when they stopped it. Wow. So, strong work. Yeah. Props fire department. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got some we got some wonderful people there and, maybe one of these days i'll get some of these guys on tell me what it's like to be in there that'd be cool yeah that'd be awesome again i think that's hearing from you is really i love that but even branching out and and, and letting the city know um who the firefighters are who the police uh, officers are um everybody who's helping run and take care of the cities is important it is so we have that uh, Facebook page for the city and some of the things that have been discussed are starting to do employee highlights and things like that cool so uh, also we have a fire department king fire department facebook page unfortunately i don't have access rights to that oh yet. no that's a <laughs> actually a private citizen has that so huh. I, i'm working with that person on being able to gain access to it and once that happens we can be able to work with that as well that's cool that's cool that a private citizen is doing that though yeah helping you all out hopefully uh, he's <laughs> he's been a long time volunteer uh, we still keep him on our roster yeah. cool but uh he's just not able to come in and he usually comes and visits with me about once a week. He's not able to be as involved as he used to be. Very cool. So again, that's going back to, you know, the people in Keene are wonderful. I'm glad to hear that, honestly. Mm -hmm. I like how that's your perspective too. Like how, or not even perspective, that's a fact for you. Mm -hmm. I like that you uh, are really there here to take care of them. So, John, Chief. I appreciate you. Yeah. Anything else? I think that's about all, uh, unless you have any other questions for me. Man, we touched on a lot. This, this is probably the longest podcast for King I've done. This is my normal podcast that I do with my, my personal stuff. Um, but 55 minutes is pretty good for a King City podcast. It is. <laughs> all right, man. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you for all you do. Thanks. All right, bye.